Imagine students from your church joining with others in ministry in the inner city of Cincinnati, making an impact for Christ. Imagine people from your congregation joining with others in ministry to meet medical needs or complete work projects benefiting Kenyans in the African bush, making an impact for Christ. Imagine watching a video of all the people in your church who made a life-changing decision to follow Christ in baptism the previous year, making an impact for Christ. Imagine people from your church engaged in ministry to people in your community, schools, neighborhoods, and organizations making an impact for Christ. Imagine Disciple Heritage Fellowship encouraging, strengthening, and leading your church to fulfill Christ's mission. Disciple Heritage Fellowship began in 1985 as a network of like-minded congregations united in faith and belief in the mission of the local church to shine the light of Jesus and stand unwavering on the Word of God as authority. Through the years, Disciple Heritage Fellowship has assisted hundreds of churches with pastoral searches, transitions to independent status, support during crisis mission endeavors, as well as providing a network connection of congregations. Disciple Heritage Fellowship is entering into a new season of leadership and mission. DHF still exists to encourage, strengthen, and lead churches to fulfill Christ's mission. The executive board of Disciple Heritage Fellowship, along with leadership teams of First Christian Church, Decatur, Illinois, have agreed to move DHF under the leadership umbrella of First Christian Church of Decatur with Pastor Wayne Kent as executive director. Wayne Kent brings years of experience of musical mission work as well as pastoral ministry to lead First Christian Church in Decatur, Illinois in reaching the community for Christ. He looks forward to assisting other congregations make a difference in their communities. Disciple Heritage Fellowship is ready to support churches through consulting with leadership about children and youth ministry, local and global missions, worship and technical arts, church staffing, and pastoral or congregational crisis. DHF exists to serve partner churches. A major event of Disciple Heritage Fellowship is the DHF National Conference, which occurs annually and is designed to provide networking for congregations, worship, and practical solutions for issues facing today's church. Find out more about the National Conference or DHF at discipleheritage.org. Disciple Heritage Fellowship, encouraging, strengthening, and leading churches to fulfill Christ's mission. So good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today. And uh, in regards to the video you just saw, it's that Disciple Heritage Fellowship, we've been part of that group for, since 1985. Uh, but in January, uh, with some lead up from months beforehand, in January, at DHS request, First Christian Church began leading that group. Uh, we moved the office, if you will, to our office. And instead of it being a one-person operation, the staff of First Christian Church now are going to be responsible for that ministry as a whole. It's pretty substantial. There are more than 80 churches involved. We have churches all the way, that are DHF churches all the way from Washington State to uh, going across the country to Florida or going the other way from southern
Southern California all the way to the Northeast. And so we have some 80 plus churches that are now all looking to First Christian Church for leadership in terms of what they're doing with their pastors, what they're doing with their leadership, how they're managing their vision and so forth. So um, I've been on the road for the last couple of weeks and uh, appreciate your willingness to let me be gone and take on some of those, just start to learn some personalities. I'll be on the road again this week. I'll be back by Friday and just kind of seeing how the, the lay of the land in that regard. And it's, uh, we've got a tall challenge in front of us. As a congregation, you're going to be responsible with me to lead the rest of these congregations. They'll be here in April. We'd like you to be part of that. And we're going to need lots of hosts for that event. April 20th and 21st is that's when that's coming up. So you might make note of that. And We'll see what God does in us and through us. We've often and always had a ministry overseas in Kenya for probably 35 years. We've had in Cuba, we've done things locally. Now God's given us this opportunity to do some things in the nation as well. So we'll see how it all plays out in the days ahead. And I thank you for your continued prayers in that regard. It's um, one of the things that I've learned uh, particularly again in the last few weeks I've been on a lot of planes and I want to thank you for the generous way in which you gave me such spectacular travel experiences. Like, do you know what it's like to, to have a layback seat? This was new to me. I, I've never had... Uh, can I show you what it's like? You get on the plane and you sit there and you put your seatbelt on and you, you're there for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes as the plane takes off and you get to 10,000 feet and the ding, you know, there's a bell that rings and that means if you need to go up and use the restroom or, and it also means you're allowed to put your seat back. And when you have a layback seat, it's quite remarkable because you go from here, you push the button and you go back. And it's remarkable, just like that, just like that. And this lovely experience of being back on your, you know, this, of course you can do this and there's seats right there in front of you. But, and then as you're landing, you know what? The, the luxury is over and you sit up again. And it's remarkable. So thank you for your care and response to, me, to, the, uh, to my needs in that regard, all right? <laughs> One other matter I need to bring to your attention, that is, uh, as you know, Easter is coming. And with Easter coming, um, we're going to have some baptisms. And uh, if you have not been baptized before and you'd like to get baptized on, on the same weekend that we remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'd look forward to uh, seeing you uh, make that move. In your program today, you saw this. Uh, we are going to have some classes to get ready for that. If you've got kids, the family ministries department will take care of it. If you're an adult... Um, you can go to those classes there next, next Sunday during this hour and the following Sunday during this hour, so you'd have to attend another service in that regard, okay? Some people have asked this question, which is legitimate. Hey, I was baptized when I was an infant. Do I have to be baptized again? Here at First Christian Church, we don't say that, no. What we would say, though, is this, that your baptism as an infant um, was a decision on the part of your parents to raise you to know Jesus Christ. We've had in years gone by, we've had literally hundreds upon hundreds of people make a choice to get baptized as an adult and saying, I'm affirming the decision that mom and dad made for me, but now I'm making this on my, my own behalf. So if you're interested in that, we'd be glad to see if we can get you, um, get you under the water, okay? And we'll let you back up again. I promise you, if we get you under, we'll let you back up, all right? Take your Bible, friends. Turn to Mark chapter 9. As you're turning to Mark chapter 9, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and it's been my privilege to lead and be uh, part of the leadership group now, First Christian Church, for more than a couple decades. And uh, we're going to read scripture beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, in a few minutes. 
And uh, to those of you in the East Auditorium, I want to say we're very glad you're with us as well today. I counted a privilege after visiting some churches in the last few days and last few weeks, I realized the strength that we have in this congregation. I don't want to say that with arrogance, but I want to say it with um, some tenderness and some appreciation for, um, for the ability that, us, that we as a congregation have uh, been used by the Holy Spirit to bring us to the place where we have had to do, move to two auditoriums. It's a good thing to be um, uh, used of God in that regard. And so thank you for that and welcome to everybody, okay? If you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home as our gift to you as it's being passed out either in the East Auditorium or take it from the pew rack here in the West. All right, so we'll look at Mark chapter nine in just a few minutes. Uh, as I was traveling, done a lot of reading and I came across an article in the New Yorker magazine from last week that featured a story uh, about a guy by the name of Jameson Barkman is his name. He, uh, the New Yorker described in this way, he, they said he is the worst roommate ever. And they detailed why he is the worst roommate, or was, he's since passed away, why he is the worst roommate ever. You may be familiar that in large metropolitan communities, um, there'll be this situation where someone will lease an apartment or a condo or a house, and then because of the price, they'll sublease a bedroom and a bathroom to, uh, if you will, to another guest, and they bring a guest into their house. And this Jameson Bachman was one of these guys who would always lease these extra bedrooms. And he'd show up with cash for the first month's rent, unbeknownst to the, to the if you will, the host. He had, was living under a false alias, and he'd show up with two cats. And the things would go well for the first couple, for the first month or so, until getting towards the end of the month, he would usually have some some statement that would say, "If this doesn't change, my agreement with you is null and void, and I'm not going to pay the second month's rent." And it was usually something very, very minor, like uh, there was a dirty dish left in the sink, or the the living room wasn't picked up properly. Like for example, there's a guy in Washington D.C., a guy named Michael Oberhauser, 31 years old. Music, a musician there, and uh, he, uh, he uh, invited Bachman into his house, and pretty quickly Bachman started complaining about the bath mat in the bathroom. Perfectly good bath mat. Every time Bachman would go in the bathroom, he'd throw it into the corner, and Oberheiser would come back, straighten it out, get thrown in the corner. Eventually, Oberheiser actually taped it to the floor with a sign underneath it that said, Why? But that was the reason that Bachman said he was not, he was not going to pay his second month's rent because he was the, the lease agreement they had was null and void. And he did this over and over and over again. As these ex-hosts got together, it began to see that basically this guy lived to, to bring misery to his hosts. Many of those hosts simply gave up and um, left the house themselves or they would have to put restraining orders against him. And in each case, because Bachman had gone through law school, he never did pass the bar, but he'd gone through law school, he was able to use his understanding of legal issues to get out of his responsibilities. He was, if you will, an unwanted guest, an invader in each of those homes. And we're gonna look at a story today from Mark chapter nine that has a discussion about an unwanted guest an invader in someone's home, namely a little boy's body. And as we do this, we're carrying on with the sermon series that Pastor Brian started over the last couple of weeks. And uh, we've been, we're looking at the book of Mark. We're going to continue to look at the book of Mark all the way through Easter. Why is that? Well, this Lenten season leading up to Easter 
is a season when the church across the world usually says, we should pay a little bit of attention to Jesus Christ, the author of our faith, because we're getting to Easter where we're going to declare his resurrection. What do we know about Jesus? So every year in the life of our church, we usually in Lent take a very serious look at Jesus' ministry. Why is that? Well, Scripture tells us to. Scripture says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Let's look to him. Because here's what he did. Because he knew there was a joy coming down the road, if you will, he endured the cross, he scorned its shame, and then he sat down at the right-hand throne of God. We should consider him. We should give some thought to who this Jesus is, how he endured such opposition from sinners, and here will be the result. We then will not grow weary and lose heart. And so since Lent and Easter is all about Jesus and about his ministry, it's appropriate that we look at the book of Mark. We're going to do that throughout the whole series of this leading up to Easter. And uh, we're probably going to discover each and every week what this series uh, title is all about. That just as the people of, of Jesus' day in the ancient world of Israel misunderstood Jesus, it's really easy for us to do the same thing as we read Scripture. We can sometimes get sidetracked. So let's see what we can do today to not get sidetracked as we look at Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. It says that Jesus, when they came to the other disciples, so what's happened leading up to this, Jesus, along with his three buddies, Peter, James, and John, have been off away by themselves, and now they're catching up with the rest of the disciples. And when they, those four guys, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. In other words, well, this is argument going on, but there's Jesus, we're out of here. What are you arguing with him about, he asked. And a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son. So apparently this guy, his father, has a little boy who's got a problem and he'd heard Jesus was going to be there. Jesus wasn't there yet, but he shows up with this little boy. I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. Jesus is kind of perturbed at their inability to work and to do this spiritual moment. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, so this little boy's got an evil spirit living with him. And when he sees Jesus, when evil confronts the son of God, when evil confronts righteousness, there's always a confrontation. Okay, so in this moment, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But but if you could do anything, I mean, we've looked around, maybe if, if you could do anything, take pity on us and help us. If, if you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I've got this portion of belief, but there's this other portion I can't believe. Can you get me through all of that? And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure impure spirit. You deaf and dumb, you, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. 
The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. So what's going on there? Well, you can see why I was thinking about this unwelcome story that I told you, this unwelcome guest, this intruder in the houses and homes of the East Coast. You can see where I got the connection there. Here's a young boy struggling with demon possession. He has an evil, unwanted spiritual being literally living inside him, creating havoc and bringing him into great danger. And the father basically says, he's foaming at the mouth, He has uncontrollable seizures. He runs into the fire to get burned. He runs into water in order to drown. And as his parents, we can't manage this. And it's horrific if you think about it. It has to be a parent's worst nightmare. Now, I need to say that as we unpack this today, that before we get too far down the track, I need to point out that demon possession is not the focus of the story. We're kind of like the crowd. We want to argue about the meaning of demon possession, but we misunderstand what the story is all about because while there's a demon in the story, demon possession is not the focus of Mark's storyline. We'll get to the focus in just a few minutes. But in order to at least satisfy these questions that we have about demons, let's take a rabbit trail. Let's take a, a quick sidebar, at least to look at what the Bible has to say about demons, and then we'll get to the main focus of the story, all right? So the question that you probably are asking as you've read this, well, what's with this little boy? Is this really a demon in him? Do demons really exist? Or is it possible, since this is an ancient text, if you will, that doesn't have the lens of modern medical science, is it possible that the Bible is simply using an ancient way of describing some medical dilemmas like mental illness or neurological disorders that bring on strange behaviors or or seizures? In other words, do demons really exist or is it just a Hollywood trick that's used in horror movies? Well, think about this. This is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. All truth comes from him. And the fact that Jesus Christ, the son of God, who comes from heaven, the fact this Jesus identifies and deals with demons, if you will, affirms the reality of demons. You don't have Jesus saying to the family or to the father or to the little boy, there's no such thing as demons, it's only a medical condition. Now, having said that, it's fair to say that medical science up until the 20th century, when medical science came along, we learned that some ailments that had been attributed to demons in the past, that that was not the case. Prior to the 20th century, it was common to say that epilepsy or seizure disorders or mental illnesses, some of them were often inaccurately diagnosed as demon possession. But with the advancement of medical science of the last hundred years or so, we've all been helped to understand that demon possession isn't like that. Not, those people may not be demon possessed. And of course, people with those medical issues have been helped as well if they have some neurological problems, if there is mental illness, okay? So we need to say that in the past, we've inaccurately diagnosed people with these conditions. However, The Bible also, at the same time, clearly indicates there is a very real legion of demons that war against humans and against righteousness. So we don't go looking for demons under every rock if there's a problem, if you will, a physical problem. But on the other hand, 
Mark 9 is not the only place where the Bible talks about demons. The Bible describes an order of evil, demonic forces in this way, and you see it throughout Scripture, and so Mark is simply adding to the record. We read this, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Okay? It's not just medical stuff but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I wonder if that's a hierarchy. Is it rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, perhaps? But nonetheless, whether or not that's a hierarchy, it's certainly fair to say that very clearly the Bible says right there that we face struggle, we face war, we are at war against spiritual forces of demonic evilness in the world. And some would say, if I can get inside your head today, say, oh, right, evil entities. Yeah. Aren't, aren't people just evil in and of themselves from time to time without any demonic influence? And you have to say, yes. Sometimes each of us choose to do wrong. And sometimes that wrong reaches a level where it moves from smaller stuff to actual, I mean, real depravity. Scripture states that each of us has a propensity to move toward evil. The book of James says that each person is tempted. Each person is tempted and they are dragged away by their own evil desires. Not demonic forces, but they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin comes along in a variety of different ways. These are choices that people make fully on their own without the influence of some demonic influence, if you will, or by a, an unwelcome guest in their body. Once sin begins, Scripture says this, that those people, or you and I, once sin begins. <laughs> Last night, somebody, I was right before the service, they said, what are you preaching about tonight? And they said, are you preaching about sin? I said, yeah, I'm against it. But there you go. Because here's, here's, here's how it plays out if, we, if we're not careful. We can become, they can become, we can become filled with every kind of wickedness, every kind of evil and greed and depravity. We could be full of envy and murder, strife, deceit and malice. We can gossip, we can slander. We can be people who hate God, who become insolent and arrogant and boastful. We, we, without the influence of demons within us, we could invent ways of doing evil. We could choose to disobey our parents. We could have no understanding whatsoever. We could choose to forego fidelity and love and mercy. We can choose that lifestyle. You and I can choose to live that way and be sinful. So we can't blame all our evil choices on demons within us. But having said that, there are significant cases in Scripture and in our world today, more extreme cases, where an unwelcome demonic guest does take up residence in a person's body, and the evil that is there is not a willful choice. And you say, that's so far out. Do we, people, we don't really believe that, do we? Well, last week, I was in a hotel in Seattle. The USA Today uh, newspaper slid under the door early in the morning. I picked it up, and USA Today last week reported this. The Vatican hopes to step up its game against demon possessions with a week-long international conference in April to address a threefold increase in demand in Italy alone for the services of exorcists. 
This is not something that's you know, being hidden. This is out there. This is, what, this is the reality of what the church is dealing with, both Protestants and Catholics. The church is particularly alarmed, this is the Roman Catholic Church, is particularly alarmed over the uneven skills of some of its current exorcists and is worried about priests who are no longer willing to learn the techniques. And Vatican Radio stated, there are some 500,000, 500,000 cases requiring exorcism in Italy each year. That's in Italy alone. This is not something that you just say, well, nobody does this anymore. No, this is the reality of this war that takes place between the people of righteousness versus the demonic evil forces. So, so you go, how is that going to play out? And what happened? Well, can I say, we have to leave the discussion right there for now. Because to go further, and we could spend a long time on this, would indicate that demon possession is the focus of the story. And in some ways, so you go, wait, I want to know about that. Well, I get that. But if we would go there, that would lead us to the same place where the people in Mark 9 are. They are misunderstanding what Jesus is doing in Mark 9. See, the people are arguing. They want more information about demon possession. And they're missing the point of Jesus' mission. Because what is it? The story's focus, if you think about it, is not about demon possession, but the story's focus is about the father's faith. See, here's this man with a horrendous situation in his family. He's heard that maybe this Jesus guy could do something about his son's condition. But while he's heard that, he can kind of go, okay, that's possible, but he, he doesn't know if Jesus can really actually manage the problem. And I understand his thinking. Can you get inside this guy's head? It's one thing, this guy's, it's one thing for this Jesus guy to, you know, teach like a rabbi. It's another thing for Jesus to challenge the status quo. But can he real, can he, does he have, really have enough power to deal with our family's problem? He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, says Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately, this father says, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I've got, I've got some places where I believe, but I've got other places where I can't get there. And that's the crux of the story. Could he believe that this Jesus guy really had power? Could this Jesus guy really change the family's story. Could there be a new page, a new chapter? What about my kid? He's thinking, Can God, is God really interested in me? And isn't that your question today? It's one thing to say, okay, Jesus died on the cross. He did that. He did the other. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and so forth. But can you believe do you have enough belief? I mean, I can believe about this much, but do you have enough belief that your world can be changed by the power of Jesus Christ? Can you believe for that? While you're thinking about that, let me see if I can offer you some answers by asking you to think about the sequence of events that's taking place in the scriptures. Look again in your Bible, Mark chapter 9. And there are, th there are some steps that are, that are taking place, and we'll see if we can figure out, can we believe that Jesus has the power and the ability and the willingness to be engaged in our lives? Starting at verse 14, what do you have? You have people arguing about how to deal with a demon. 
beginning at verse 17, you have Jesus' conversation with the boy's father. So you go from a large group down to this one-on-one conversation, if you will. Then in verse 20, all the focus and attention, if you will, goes to this little guy. Verse 20, the, the spirit overtakes the boy's body and he's got convulsions and foaming. And then as this little boy is on the ground, foaming at the mouth and writhing, it's almost as if Jesus gets sidetracked. I mean, here's the boy convulsing on the ground and Jesus in the middle of that decides to have a conversation with his father about the guy's faith. Foam and crisis are writhing in front of Jesus. The man is desperate and he's going, you wanna have a conversation with me about my faith level? And Jesus say, says, so, this, this trouble right in front of him. So, tell me about your faith. You know, I've been in that setting in the past. I suppose I'll probably be there again. There's a moment, there's a period, there's a time block of life. And uh, it seems that chaos is throwing everything important to the ground. And it's right there in front of you. And it's just foam all over the place. And in those moments, I want answers to my questions. And I want them quickly. And I want an end to the mess. I want no more pandemonium in my life at all. That turmoil gets my attention. So I get the father's response quite well. He's desperate, but there's no panic in Jesus' eyes whatsoever. Um, I saw this play out many years ago. Um, when, When our son Benjamin was a little baby boy, he was susceptible to febrile seizures. The seizures, you know what they are perhaps. Young children can react, certain young children can react to a high fever and they'll have a seizure. And for a parent, it's unbelievably scary. And so we had seen this occur a number of times. We'd had an ambulance ride and all that sort of stuff and lumbar punctures and all sorts of mess. And so we kind of knew what to expect. Leslie was at work one day. I had the day off. This is when we were living in Tulsa. And I think Ben was, he was less than two years old as I think about it, maybe 18 months old. And some sort of infection was obviously messing with him badly. And I'm checking him throughout the day and his fever's going up. And I remember thinking, you know, this is the sort of fever that in the past has brought on one of these seizures. I'm taking him to the doctor. I mean, I didn't call to make an appointment. Or I said, I'm just going to the doctor's office to see what's going on. So you've probably been there, haven't you? If, you're, if you have had a kid, that moment when that baby is really listless and not engaged, miserable. So I got to the doctor's office and I could tell his fever's going higher and higher. And, and I, 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 I would signed in and I'm, saying, I'm waiting for a doctor's appointment whenever he can get me in. And I've got that little guy in my hands, in my, in my arms, holding him up like this, listless. And suddenly I can feel this seizure coming on. Scary, right? And so I'm doing what you do. I'm starting to panic. Wouldn't you panic? All right. And so I, I kind of bring him down. He's laying across my arms now and I'm walking up to the reception. He's having a seizure and she says, doctor, doctor. And so we walk down the hallway and the doctor calmly comes out of this exam room and here's Ben doing this. And I'm going, doctor, doctor, Benjamin's having a seizure and I'm expecting him to move really quickly. And he just goes, well, let's bring him in here. And we took him in, we placed him on an exam table and that doctor put his hand on Ben's chest and he said, we'll just wait. For what? You're gonna wait? Do something! You know, here's what I learned in that moment about that physician. That was nothing scary for him. 
I was looking for panic in his eyes, panic in his behavior. Nope. Why? Why? Because he'd seen it before. And that was Jesus in this situation. Of course, the stakes were much higher. In this case, the seizure wasn't the result of a high fever, but the, the seizure and the foaming and everything is the result of an evil demon inside this little boy's body. He had this unwanted spiritual entity of evil within him, an unwelcome guest, and yet Jesus wasn't phased by the situation. The father is legitimately stressed, but Jesus, mm-mm, mm-mm, nope. No panic in his eyes, no panic in his actions. So, Dad, let's have a conversation about your faith quotient, and then we'll get to the matter at hand. Friends, your situation is crazy at times, isn't it? The setting at work, the stuff with the family, your spouse's spirituality or lack thereof, the choices, of your grand, the choices your grandkids have made and you just go, oh. Your work atmosphere, students, the challenges and the demands that are being made upon you at school. And it's, it's like Benjamin was in my arms that day. The condition is listless, laying across you in a horizontal fashion with, ah, what's gonna happen? And you're wondering if the foaming is going to go from your hands and everything valuable in your life is going to be thrown to the ground. Like that little boy in Mark 9. Can I tell you, friend? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the conqueror of all evil is not panicked by your situation. Neither by all that's taken place in the past nor by all that's in front of you right now. It's fair and reasonable to follow the model that Scripture gives us. And we look to the Son of God and we say, I can believe this much. I've done that in the past, but for where I am right now, I'm going to need this much belief. Help me to believe a lot more. And isn't that what the father's, this little boy's father said? I believe in the places where I can, but in the places where I can't, will you help me? And you know what? God responded. See, friend, the boy's healing was not conditional upon the father answering the right way or having the correct faith formula. The boy was healed through a graceful act of God in Jesus Christ. And God is going to have that same graceful act and that same graceful move in your dilemma today. There's healing, there's change, there's restitution, there's redemption. God, it's all on the way. It's in the pipeline coming your way. And as you wait, God wants to deal with you. God wants to know of your ability to trust him. God wants to help you grow in your walk with him and it's a shift. This whole story is about a shift in your relationship of trust with God. Do you have a problem at work? Do you have one at school, at home, at church? Right here, is there a problem here? You wanna believe God for better days, but you can't get there inside your head? Well, before you focus on the problem and before you focus, if you will, on the situation on the ground with all the foam around, Deal with the stuff of your soul. Lord Jesus, I believe this much. Help me to believe the rest of the way. Now, friend, don't misunderstand Jesus' intent or plan for you. He certainly wants to deal with the foaming matters around you. He doesn't want your stuff to be damaged, to be thrown in the fire, to be drowned in in water. That's all going to be taken care of. But first, 
And more importantly, he wants to have an impact upon the health of your soul. We start there, and then we let God work out the rest. So would you pray with me about that, please? God in heaven, I thank you that you know the beginning from the end. You know the middle. You know the stuff in my life that's uh, right and the places that are wrong. You know, Lord, um, my yesterdays and my tomorrows. I thank you, God, that um, I'm not stuck in a never-ending kind of loop, a viral loop that goes over and over and over again and has to be replayed every 30 seconds or every 60 seconds. But, Lord, I'm thankful that you are the God who is drawing your, your, your plan and your course of history in my life and in the lives of the people here. And Father, in the name of Christ, I pray for people here today who are um, in situations that maybe need some of your attention. There are places, God, at work, at school, at home, maybe even here in the church, that it's kind of messy. And in some ways, Lord, we think that those places might be crisis moments. And we think that what's really important to us has been thrown on the ground and is writhing there in front of us. But I'm thankful that you're not panicked by that. And in the midst of those moments, God, in the places, Lord, where we've been able to believe a little bit, help us to believe a lot more. That the answers are in the pipeline coming our way. And in the meanwhile, by golly, God, we're going we're, we're, we're gonna to learn to trust. Not in our strength, but in your strength within us. Help us to understand your heart for us today. In Christ's name.